there comes a moment when your silly pedantic skate podcast is just wildly ill-equipped of living up to the seriousness of the moment that we find ourselves in. The murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, Dion Johnson, and countless others at the hands of the police have led to nationwide revolt, primarily led by black youth. We're going to try to do our best to contribute to this conversation in a way that we hope is constructive. So I'm in my backyard in Phoenix. Uh, we're practicing social distancing. It's over 100 degrees out, and I'm joined by Ted Schmitz and one of our good friends, longtime skater, historian, and professor of social unrest at ASU, Alan Gomez. I figured the best thing we can do in this moment is listen to and provide a platform for people who have been doing the work. Alan's got a long history in movement politics and abolition work, and he's here to help educate us. So really hope we can, get all, we can all get something out of this and move past despondency. There's a colossal amount of badness out there, and sometimes social media specifically can make us feel paralyzed. That's just no good for anyone. So Alan, before we get started into the real, real stuff, how did you get into skateboarding? Well, first of all, thanks for having me and for those of you that are listening, um, for being present and for continuing to uh, jump on board with this podcast that helps us reimagine what's possible. Um, I started skating, I was 13, junior high, Neil Blender, first board, like so many of us, trying to sort of figure out how to fit in in a, in a world that, um, I grew up in South Texas as a Mexican skater, um, and so it was very much uh, a middle ground, um, and uh, I haven't stopped since, um, you know, uh, and so I appreciate this opportunity to share with uh a community that I've been part of for a long time, some of the other experiences from the other worlds that I've lived in, whether in graduate school or political work around abolitionist or other uh, radical politics. So again, thanks for having me and um, uh, thanks for listening. No, thank you, honestly, for, for being here. It means a lot. Um, I guess the first thing is, what is abolition? Well, it is uh, an idea that first has to be contextualized with where you were listening from right now, wherever you're at, and the context as you introduced. We're in a time of pandemic, a global pandemic, and we are also witnessing the uh, always present violence against black bodies. And so the language and some of the conversations we're gonna have today are gonna be introducing new, new ideas. Some of them you may have heard before, they're circulating out in the world. Um, but definitions are really important. So um, we want to start with sort of three. Uh, abolition, uh, the prison industrial complex, um, and first off, uh, the definition of racism. And particularly given the circulation of an image that from the, from the 1980s of, of Tommy G's, uh, uh, the bottom of his deck that says end racism, which uh, apparently is circulating quite a bit now, and I was a young teenager when that first came out and I've been thinking about my memories about seeing that for the first time mm -hmm. and what that did to me and what it may mean to now think about these ideas but I want to talk about racism that's not an individual moment this is a definition by Ruthie Wilson Gilmore who's a geographer and an abolitionist and this is the definition she gives and we'll unpack it I think to start with racism is uh, state sanctioned uh, essentially state sanctioned uh, an extra legal production and exploitation of group differentiated vulnerabilities to premature death. Okay, what does that mean? That means that there's certain policies that are made 
that mean that certain bodies die faster and certain mm -hmm. other bodies live longer, mm -hmm. right? Such that group differentiated vulnerabilities, certain groups, whether in this case we're talking about racialized groups or we can talk about groups that are gendered, right? Or we can talk about trans folks, we can talk about immigrants, but policies that make it such that their life ends faster than others, yeah. right? So when we talk about racism or sexism, we want to talk about the structural ways in which individuals make decisions, but the ways in which these ideas are in structures. And I think hopefully by the end of this, we can kind of understand what that, what that means. Um, so the second definition is, uh, as you asked Ryan about abolition, and I'm gonna sort of read these off uh, just to be very specific and name who's given these definitions to us because um, as we know, when we're tracing a genealogy of tricks, it's always important where they came from originally, and so we want to really be yeah. citation. You got to know who's ABD. You got to know who's ABD and MBD and any of the other acronyms yeah, that yeah. are out there. Yeah. So the first one is by Angelica Camacho, and she reminds us that abolition is a verb, right? It's in the doing, right? Ruth Wilson Gilmore comes along and says, so abolition is a theory of change. It's a theory of social life. It's about making things. Third definition to think about, and then we'll unpack these as we go along, and this is Dylan Rodriguez. Now and long before, abolition is and was a practice, an analytical method, a present tense visioning, an infrastructure in the making, a creative project, a performance, a counter war, an ideological struggle, a pedagogy and curriculum, an alleged impossibility that is furtively present, pulsing, produced in the persistent insurgencies of human being that undermine the totalizing logics of empire, chattel, occupation, heteropatriarchal, racial colonial genocide, and civilization as a juridical narrative epic. Okay, so that's a whole lot of multisyllabic words. Mm -hmm. My brain's hurting a little bit. Yeah, no, I, I, I was reading through that and then thinking about what it means to take the time to understand something that people have been struggling for for 400 years. Yeah. At one point we'll decolonize skateboarding, but... <laughs> well, well. Yeah, we have to find out where the wood comes from first. Yeah. Right? <laughs> uh, so, um, so essentially abolition is the idea of, first of all, removing from society the notion of punishment, vengeance, and state violence that's authorized and justified because of the way in which certain criminal, certain bodies and communities are criminalized. So the idea, what we hear with defunding the police, is very simple. To lessen the amount of authoritarian bodies, that is people that have the power to do violence to others, mm -hmm. and to shift the resources somewhere else, but most importantly, to think about the logic of punishment and vengeance that permeates not just the police department, but other institutions. Right, so I'm thinking of teachers that are jamming up students. Social workers. Social workers that are, you know, doing the work of the state for CPS, right? So abolition, the abolition of the police is not simply the policing apparatuses, but the very notion of vengeance and sort of violence from the state that's authorized. That's a big idea, obviously. Yeah. And it's a practice that starts at home, correct? It's definitely a practice that begins where we're at. So 
Um, one of the things that we hear a lot is, well, if we abolish the police, well, what about sort of the rapists and murderers? Well, first of all, when we define people by their act, we're already pathologizing people, mm -hmm. right? So we can't define people by what they do. Second of all, if we look at sexual assault cases and the massive list backlogs of rape kits, why are we even using the police and trusting the police to actually deal with these social crimes, right? So when we think about the ways in which current uh, social violations are dealt with, can we trust the police to deal with sexual assault? We were talking beforehand about, you know, Sheriff Joe Arpaio and the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office inability to uh, process sexual assault cases in the backlog of, of, of sexual assault cases. Yeah. So here locally, right, I think it's so, sort of important to think about where you're at in your neighborhood um, and begin there in terms of the questions of defunding the police, because it could be, you know, a neighbor in the corner that's always sort of policing who's in that area, right? Yeah. So it's not just the infrastructure of the police. Yeah, neighborhood watch. Neighborhood watch. It's the very notion that we police each other. And skating, we all know that skate skating polices. We police each other all the time. And sometimes police skate. <laughs> huh. You ever see those viral kickflips? They're like, everyone's like, damn, dude, this cop can three flip. And you're like, <laughs> no, more like this cop can fake you bigger flip. And you're like, that trick sucks, dude. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and later on, that cop's going to be gassing somebody without a doubt. Yep. Yeah. Yep. You know, I don't usually, like, fall, like, full into things. I'm, like, pretty skeptical, like, kind of treat my life like everybody's, like, yanking my chain because, like, nothing's worse than getting got. But well, I think one of the hardest things to do is, you know, just even before this, you know, like, I, it, it, it's, it's hard not to take our, I guess, aggression that we have towards people who have done tremendous harm and to not pathologize them like that just as a as an exercise for any individual human like dude i have so much scorn for so many people and like and in return i think a lot of people that i've wronged in my life like have scorn for me as well and and it, it's like to, to to dip your toe into the water of abolition if it's if it's saying to like start there like start with how you consider people and 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 how you chase down vengeance like that's that's like a i don't even know like it's not like joining a, a, an organization where you got like a membership card that's or you know it's not a degree um so how do you get people to like kind of sign on board for the whole package like even after that because that's like a hard thing like like i mean i'm sitting here right now and i'm feeling like in a pretty good mood and forgiving but like i'm still mad about like fucking hutu power people and like fucking i'm mad about like yeah like racist hell's angels dudes and like i i don't really have any empathy for a lot of like you just tell me a story right now of somebody being a total dick and i'll be like i don't know you know, I, I, poetic justice feels like, um, some form of, uh, not violence, but, um, some form of vengeance uh, or aggression yeah, yeah. towards them. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you hear that's like somebody punched my friend. It's like, I hope they get punched back or that all their tires get slashed. Like, how do you, so if we're starting with this business of abolition and we're connecting it with, with a whole kind of broad abstract restructuring of society, how do you kind of get people to 
kind of undo this stuff because I think that those impulses within me are from a Christian upbringing and from an American upbringing. And not that violence is only to the Christians and to the Americans, but I think that we have a a very strong uh, kind of national identity around like not treading on me and bad things happening to you if you do. So the national identity is actually, I'm, I'm glad that that word came out because the question, one of the questions is how do we come to learn to be vengeful to each other? Yep. How do we come to learn to desire revenge? Like where do we learn that from? And Disney movies. Disney movies. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> yeah. Because it's deeply Christian and deeply national, right? So uh-huh. yeah, there's all, the, we're taught by media that revenge is what we get. But let me, let me sort of come at it from a different angle, if you will. What does it mean to learn switch? You learn everything the same but different, opposite. But it's not opposite. It's different. It's not opposite. It's different, yeah. right? It's it's a whole different imagination. Some people learn switch because you want to learn switch. Some people learn switch because you break your ankle. Some people do it because they can't skate transition. I didn't know that. <laughs> I did not know that. Well, maybe that's why I can't skate switch because I can skate transition. But so it's a, it's a it really is a reimagining of not only what we want to do but how we came to learn what we were doing before right so Uh if abolition is a theory of social change a theory of social life a theory about making things then abolition is also trying to challenge the normative narrative that we've all been taught about what change is what social life is and what we're supposed to make yeah. and in USC and society we're supposed to work hard meritocratically pull ourselves by our bootstraps and therefore not need any support externally so yeah. that's a myth I mean that's a that's mm-hmm. a that's something that we sort of tell ourselves right so the, the one of the places to start if thinking if you're gonna do switch it's like well how do you move your everything in the opposite way yeah. which means returning to the original point so this country was not founded on the notion of freedom and slave and 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 uh, and uh, everybody sort of has uh, democratic individual rights. No Certain shit. people had those. <laughs> Certain people had them, yeah. but predicated on the fact that others didn't. Right. Yeah. And so we can either tell ourselves the wonderful story of, you know, the pilgrims and they came and the city went up hill. But we think, well, who owned the hill? Well, the folks that owned the hill didn't claim ownership. Right. Uh-huh. And then who worked the hill? Right. And so the origin narratives are deeply influential in terms of how we can imagine one a counter narrative to the origin narrative and then two a different imaginary in the present to create something else so if we were to sort of take seriously not simply that this society is psychologically and libidinally founded on genocide and slavery but that they are ongoing structures Mm -hmm. They weren't yeah. just an event at one time that happened, yeah. right? And so if we even think of, 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 of COVID on, on the Diné Reservation right now, right? The, yeah. the massive rates that are happening in terms of COVID. Um, and then if we sort of think of not slavery ends at a particular moment, but the continuities of the legal and cultural structure, we're still living with them today. And, and I think that that is the first imperative to consider imagining a different understanding of the past is a different narrative. Second is that when we have a narrative of our own past, whether it's a national past of the story or our own story, it's very difficult to step out of that because we act and do things based on the assumption of the narrative of the past and the history. So if we think, oh, the United States just works hard and people struggle and then we change the laws and everything's great. No. Actually, that's not what goes on. But if we believe that is what goes on, 
then that's the expectation we have in the present. And then it's easy to critique people that are not doing that, mm-hmm. right? And so I think part of it is a reckoning with the history of sort of this country, but for skaters that are out there listening, it's a reckoning of the way in which these dynamics find their place in skating, whether we're talking about homophobia or misogyny, we police each other all the time, right? Yeah. And so that's kind of the, 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 the move, the understanding that when we're talking about abolishing police departments and defunding policing, we're also asking to defund and abolish the way in which we police each other. Right? Yeah. No, yeah, that's right. I mean, I just don't know if you have any success at like converting, uh, aggro 32 year old skaters uh <laughs> to to not being uh you know vengeful or or at least uh you know i certainly enjoy schadenfreude in my daily life you know if you like tell me like hey like this guy who was like tr- like dressed up like a fake crosswalk guard to like perv on kids like he actually got hit by a car while he was doing that work i'd be like ah oh, that's funny and you know, I don't really know how to undo some of those structures that are within me. They feel so fundamental. That's deep. I mean, I, I mean, it's <laughs> right. not just because it's fundamental, because I think that we can all share that. Even yeah. if we're wanting to move away from that, like yeah. what do we do with these egregious violations? And so one of the things about abolishing the police, defunding the police and moving to abolishing what folks call the carceral society, and maybe that's another definition yeah. we could talk about, right? Like. Prisons and policing are not just police and prisons, right? It's yeah. social workers, it's it's high school st- teachers, it's neighbors, it's it's anyone who feels privileged enough to default to the political authority to call them and be like, yo, help me out, right? I mean, we're seeing all yeah. of the Karen videos circulating, right? But that sort of notion of, oh, the police are there to protect, yeah. there's the moment. Protect who from what, Yeah. right? And I think that's key in terms of... If you're a police officer in South Phoenix, you don't live there. You live far away. So what is your imagination of that community? How does the media create it? How does the history create that sort of notion of those people over there? And then let's go police them, right? Now, if you're from that community, I live in South Phoenix, but if you're from that community, then the historical memory and narrative you have is fundamentally different from, say, somewhere else in the city. Um, I don't know if I've talked any aggro 32 year old skaters out of anything right because <laughs> i'm a i i'm that like yeah, this uh-huh. is this is the, this is the point of the conversation is that to a certain extent we're talking to our younger selves or our permanent selves or our future selves right yeah, yeah. so last week right grosso's one of his last love letters right? yeah. phenomenal impact i think that you know even in the last interview where he's talking to steamer and she's there and and listening to him and him saying okay this is what we have to do yeah right and i think that 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 is a deep moment that's getting rid of the policing, policing yeah. gender and policing sexual identity, right? And so when we sort of talk about defunding the police, uh, how do we defund the cop in our head, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, where do the taxes come from to pay the cop in our head, right? Yep. Um, so my, most of my interactions with skaters are either in the skate park or in the, in the classroom. And I can use, I look at shoes to see, you know, if, they're, if they skate switch or regular goofy, right? Yeah. But, right? But there's the conversation that happens partly is yeah. that, um, and also y'all are listening right now and be like, hey, whatever, these guys, what are they talking about? This is a lifelong moment. Yeah. This moment is lifelong. In yeah. other words, there's a breaking point and there's a threshold 
and whether or not we get on board with the threshold, there's going to be another wave that comes, right? So practice paddling. I'm not sure what metaphor to use here. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, that's right. I mean, one of the one of the better, um, just just on that Grasso point, um, I think one of the most convincing things for me, and 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 I don't know if it's Ryan's mission, but it's my mission. I think with with having conversations like this is to not just expand people's mind and not to give them a thought experiment or to give them any homework. It's to, I am very actively trying to convince people of, um, not usually when I'm talking about skate videos and stuff, I'm usually just talking shit and I, and I hope that it's taken in mostly good fun, but I am hoping to convince people to be a more forgiving and, uh, and, and and a less vengeful person typically. Um, and I think that, you know, there's no, I don't have a blueprint for it now. Cause I slip back into it all the time. Like, dude, fucking, you know, like I said, you know, we were talking about Harvey Weinstein. Like I, I still, and even to this moment, like I, th- I think and desire horrible things to him on my better moments. I, I at least hope that torture doesn't happen, you know, but, um, but with the Grasso thing, I think that there's there's an important inflection point that that happens with himself that he admits to, which is like he he recognizes his past transgressions and then being confronted with the people that those actions made life worse for. He he sees his past self as somebody who has worked against the the interest of of his primary self, which is a skater who loves skaters and wants skaters to be left alone, to have fun. Uh, and when you can kind of see those moments and, in in working against the interest of your kind of like primary self, I think that that at least for me has, has, um, has kind of, uh, leveled me. Um, even with, even with, you know talking about the police dude i've called the cops a bunch of times you know like i was going to a new year's party and somebody was assaulting their girlfriend in a car and like i called the cops like i don't know what the fuck to do i'm 140 pounds and i don't know what's going on and and um not realizing a number of things like one i am an able-bodied person who could be a little braver every now and then um and two it's like i don't realize that you know, after this call in Central Park, it's like, you know, I don't know. I don't know what looking back. I don't know what the guy he, he wasn't white, uh, wasn't a black guy. But it's like, I don't know if he was indigenous or if he was um, or, or, or what like his his uh, relationship was to the police. But I know what the relationship of the police on to these people uh, are or at, at least people who don't look like me. And uh and having moments like that where you can kind of like reflect on that, I found that it's it's at least been helpful um, seeing like new evidence of, of people kind of calling the cops and, and, you know, like if you can see the kind of like devil in yourself or whatever, I found that to be a like vaguely helpful, although not completely transformative because, mm-hmm. yeah, like I said, uh, very much enjoy schadenfreude and poetic justice and all those things. Yeah, I, I mean... I think that a lot of this has to do with comfort and where that comfort, like at whose expense does it come from? And yeah. so with, with each of these, uh, viral videos of police murders, I think that a lot of people are slowly realizing that their relative comfort and the ability to call the police 
as a as a reflex knowing that they'll protect them yeah um again comes at the expense of uh, a certain portion of this population right that that <laughs> liberal democracy but for who you know yeah how do we measure change like how do we know something's different i mean we we know when we get a trick but we get got to get a trick more than once for the change to happen right in other words so so if abolition is a verb and it's in the doing then it's also not going to be tomorrow that it's going to be entirely different right and so mm-hmm. so and and i really appreciate these conversations about specific moments that we've all been in and we had to choose what to do yeah. right and if there are no other options than calling 911 or calling the police in a moment like that right um whether witnessing public domestic violence or a a, a private mental health issue or mm-hmm. um sort of any of the, any other of these moments where the police are asked to do something that they are entirely not trained for which doesn't mean we can train them for it yeah right yeah so there is a question of what do we do so how do we think about that in a local level to create infrastructures and we've seen some of these suggestions coming out recently about other entities that are called to deal with certain moments right yeah. mm-hmm. so the specific kind of uh, navigating specific sort of moments requires that we look toward organizations and people that have been doing this for decades and to see sort of what have they attempted to implement and then what has not been allowed right so Camden New Jersey is used as the example right that there was sort of this attempt to abolish the police and yeah replace it with community policing which is just <laughs> police <laughs> right so so also the crime rate went down because they had they had more beat cops and you're like yeah if you put more cops on that's like one not defunding and two it, you're like yeah I, that's just a sur- that's like a surveillance state that's a police state like yeah you could just very easily put cops on every single corner and then there would be lower crime but you would live in a well, fucking and, nightmare and not to mention i think the thing that a lot of people are getting quickly educated on uh, which is encouraging is that like these reforms that are constantly thrown out there by city council people and mayors and governors are the same reforms that have just you know continuing to uh you know they're continuing this cycle of of you know the murder of black and brown people um and white people as well uh but that you know i guess what we can get into is like what are non-reformist reforms and uh can you can you unpack that what are reforms that lead to abolition so non-reformist reforms, a phrase that Ruthie Wilson Gilmer has, has uh, gifted us, and she was the person at the beginning that I mentioned the definition of racism and abolition. And we're repeating the name so that you can go check it out on your own. And, and So the mis- misogyny and the police don't make anybody safer. And I put those two, two things together on purpose because one of the things I hear Gross was saying is him recognizing that the way in which he was policing, and he wouldn't have used those words, but was policing who could participate in skating, not only limited the possibility of skating, but limited who he was as a human being. Misogyny is, 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 is violent to men in the same moment that it kills women and it kills non-men, right? In other words, misogyny is a transphobic way of being limits who we can be as human beings because if we cry or we have emotions or we feel things all of a sudden we resist doing that and then we just sort of put it in here and bottle it up and who ends up 
having to deal with the consequences of that bottle of violence. So, mm-hmm. so what I what I was phenomenal about Grasso's moment and what you're saying, Ted, is like, what does it mean to consider that our actions limit other people's possibilities to reach their full potential? And I didn't say freedom on purpose, mm-hmm. because freedom and democracy go hand in hand in this country. And if we think about the democratic notion, a bunch of people ain't been free. So we have yep. to think about notions of unfreedom. How does democracy create unfreedom for certain people such that if we think about what are called non-reformist reforms, non-reformist reforms are changes that do not build up the power, the infrastructure, or the political authority of the police. So, for example, let's say hypothetically that the Phoenix School District uh, decided to no longer have RSOs, uh, SROs, uh, SROs uh, which are school cops, school cops anymore, right? And they said, and there's there's this hanging budget. What do we do with that budget? Yeah. Boom! After school program. After school program. Even for skateboarding. Maybe even for skateboarding, <laughs> right? So if abolition is been you. the doing, then it's already being done. Yeah. Proto-abolition moments, right? Yeah. Mutual aid moments. Yeah. Um, so. Non-reformist reforms are changes within policy that do not build up the infrastructure of the prisons or the police, that do not create uh, pathways for more people to go into prison. Now, listeners, I just shifted from police to prisons because when we abolish the police, we're not talking about abolishing prisons. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a huge idea because what do we do with X, Y, and Z? Well, let's figure it out. Right. If we if we don't jam folks up for low level drug deals, if we don't make the distinction between violent and nonviolent crimes, if we take into consideration the social reasons why people make decisions to to commit crimes, Mm -hmm. then all of a sudden we're asking a bunch of different questions. And therefore, there's people out in the world that might have different answers than defaulting the police every time that we have an issue. Yeah. But not to mention that that like for for me, the, the 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 idea that really helped me was like, what is what does it mean that we just always have this reflexive carceral response in which we can just put people away in a cage and forget about them? And if you have to live in a society where you know that a certain amount of violent acts will take place, like what kinds of social services and community networks do you set up knowing that, again, you can't just call an authority, put someone in a cage, forget about them forever? So who's disposable in your life? Like, 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 let's think, and who have we been taught socially is acceptable to be disposable? So COVID reveals a whole lot. We don't, we don't really care about older folks or younger folks mm-hmm. or anybody who decides to wear them. We're in Arizona, just to be clear, yeah. right? That, that if you wear a mask, supposedly there's sort of this reason beyond safety. Mm-hmm. It's ideological. Yeah. Right? Um, it's almost as if we, we only care about the people who contribute to the national GDP. And productivity is racialized, mm-hmm. right, and yep. gendered, right? So, so reproductive labor at home that doesn't get counted in the GDP that conditions the possibility for everybody, right? So definitely, I think the question, how do we learn who's disposable? How do ideologies, whether it's religious, political, familial, teach us who is disposable? And then how do we create laws that appear democratic Right, that then have the consequences of certain people dying faster. Um, the hard thing about this, and you know, I say this as someone who's been, you know, uh, 
reading and writing about this for a long time, but also just living life and participating in political movements and organizations and just life and having to decide when and not to call the police. Yeah. Um, we only can come up with an answer, I think, when we're deeply in the moment of the experience, but we shouldn't come up with the answer alone. Whether it's our conversation here or whoever is around you, consider that. Who's influencing your political imaginary? What and who and what media and which Twitter feeds and which homies do influence you? And is that influencing creating the conditions of possibility for you to reach your potential? And most importantly, and I think this is like, for me as someone who's, I'm 47 years old, uh, how do we listen to people whose imaginaries are not already uh, anemically kind of constructed with how to create something new? Um, and so I'm excited about looking as a historian and as a participant, at least in the last 20 and 10 years of political movements, uh, anti-war movements after 9-11, Occupy, the organizing around economic justice after the 2008 crash, 2010 here in Arizona with, with um, anti-SB 1070 stuff and the migrants' rights movement, BLM that is organizing nationally, all of those infrastructures of political movements and activists are places where folks that are listening can plug in, right, ask questions. And we would not be having this conversation had it been not for these folks, queer, black, undocumented women, allies, folks that are going beyond allyship. Young that, people. Young people. And let's go back to skate after school. What's, what's the possibilities of thinking through getting rid of police officers in, after, in, in schools and just shifting it to skating? Everybody can think about that in their local place. Right. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about skateboarders' role in this because I've been incredibly heartened by the response from the skate community. Um, I mean, like, you know, you're seeing things from skate companies, but more importantly, like, skateboarders are on the ground, they're in the streets, uh, they're organizing protests, and I think obviously, like, a lot of people out there have a intuited a an anti-authoritarian framework, you know, that, you know, and I think a lot of that stems from the fact that we've interacted with the police in a, in an unpleasant way. Um, even as, you know, as like a white kid who grew up in the suburbs, I was arrested for skating a six there at an elementary school in sixth or seventh grade and handcuffed and put in the back of a police car. The police officer told me, you know, you can, he's, he said, you can, take your hands out of the, the handcuffs because they were too big for me. They're adult handcuffs. And he's like, but don't do that. It's a felony. And uh, obviously, like, I get treated much differently as a white kid in the suburbs with the police. But it's baked into us. Uh, and so I think that, again, like, the response from skateboarders is is natural. And, and uh, again, I've been really, really encouraged to, to see this. And I guess could you talk a little bit more about skateboarders role in this uh in this process because a lot of it too stems from the fact that we interact with private property in a way that is you know the enforcers of private property <laughs> are not particularly stoked on right police baiting well let's politicize the refusal right a refusal without politics can reproduce relations of power because you have the privilege to say no um 
One thing would be, what's the alternate genealogy of skating that we don't know yet, but we have little bits and pieces of? And, and this podcast is part of it. Y'all have been recovering a particular analysis in history of skating that isn't necessarily represented in mainstream narratives, whether it's in the magazines or what's been published, right? First off. So all of a sudden then, there may be more stories of conversations like this that have existed for 40 years that we don't know about, that have been hidden, that have been pushed away, that have been violently limited, right? So one of the things is, if, if abolition is a theory of social change, and again, I'm, I'm a historian, it's also a theory of writing history. What's an abolitionist history, right? So what, when, so let's go back to Tommy G's, what we started off with, the, the, the picture that's circulating about it and racism. What was going on in his life? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, wh- Tommy, what was happening at that moment that you needed to write that? What were you trying to say? What wasn't heard? What had been happening to you for years that got jammed up? Good question. Let's ask. Hi, Tommy. Hey, how's it going? So what was going on in your life uh, when you shot that iconic photo? At that point in time, I was reading a lot of nonfiction, a lot of history stuff. Um, and I had always been a big fan of MLK, and I was reading uh, his autobiography and several other books just about his life and, you know, what he's done, of course. And But I was also reading, you know, Malcolm X, read his. And then I was reading a lot on uh, Native Americans, uh, kind of running the gamut, like Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee and Lame Deer Speaks and Black Elk and just tons of tons of Native American history and, of course, what they went through. And then, you know, the Black Panther parties from the Bay Area. And, you know, I grew up in San Francisco, so always knowing about that. Um, so I was at that time, I was just reading a lot about it all and how it just was such, you know, horrific circumstances and what was going on in this country for so long. That it, that it was difficult to not um, somehow get my thoughts out there. Um, and so at that point in time, like after reading all this stuff, you know, it, you get to a point, you're like, oh my God, this is fucking horrible. That I guess yeah. I think I just, I wrote it on my board out of the necessity to probably, so I have a cathartic need um, and to spread the idea that we need to kind of put an end to this because it's also perplexing in the sense that I don't understand racism. I don't, I really don't. Um, We are all human and we all are pretty much the same in basic ways and want the same things out of life. So I I just, I kind of struggled with all that stuff and I was quite angered by it all as well. Um, So yeah, so skateboarding is my vehicle and my form of self-expression. And so I think that was a way to get out uh, what I was thinking at the time. Yeah, I can't think of a better vessel than the bottom of a skateboard. Yeah, and I don't remember the guy taking the photo, especially that was at BK's ramp. And normally it would have been, you know, BK shooting all the photos. So it's kind of interesting how that just came to be that moment in time. And then obviously there's a photo of me um, following the day after the Loma Prieta earthquake. Um, writing that same board that BK had posted that I had never seen until about two weeks ago. Yeah, you hadn't seen the second photo? No, it's a sequence. And I haven't seen the sequence, so I was just going to hit him up and say, hey, I want to see the sequence. Amazing. And the video the video footage of the, the photo is in, uh, what is that in? Ban this, I think. It's in the Powell video. And kudos to those guys for not cutting it out. Yeah, of course. That's rad. Yeah, it was, just, it was a point in time when I was just self-educating 
and you start reading about the, you know, the COINTELPRO and, you know, the systemic oppression of like the Black Panther Party and, uh, you know, AIM, American Indian Movement, and anything else, how they just went about systematically um, destroying their organizations. And they did it. Yeah, they were threatened. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. I feel you. And I think that, I mean, as you've seen, that, that photo has become a kind of an iconic image for this moment that a lot of people are, are looking back to. And and one thing we're kind of covering in this is that we're so encouraged by the way that skateboarders have gotten involved in these protests. It's really interesting how that has been really making its way around not only our community, but, but also branching out into the music and, and so forth. And, and, you know, I'm just, I don't ever respond. I just, if I do, I just say thanks for spreading the message because it's about the message. Yeah, of course. That's a, that's an honorable thing to do. Well, sweet. Thank you so much um, for taking the time to uh, help us with this. It means a lot. Yeah, no worries. I, I appreciate you guys being interested. All right. Well, take care, uh, Tommy. Have a good day. All right. You too. See you guys. What, what would have happened if Jesse Martinez didn't get in that fight and he got his pro model from Powell? Would that then have changed the moment that he couldn't get a job to clean the Venice skate park because he had a police record? Not for the same moment, but like what is the accumulated consequences on people's lives of the way in which even in skating, they're sort of good skaters and bad skaters. That denomination is problematic as well. But so on the one hand, there's a different history that we can, we can sort of claim, look for, mm -hmm. ask for questions about. Second, what is now present, and we can, you know, we, we go to skate after school because it's, it's nearby, but Skate Pal in Palestine. Like, skate like a girl. Skate like a girl, the unity that's come up, right? So all of these places, uh, skate witches, right? All of these places that are imagining something outside of the inherited imagination of mainstream hierarchical centralized skateboarding. Right. Mm -hmm. And so as an as a as a way to to see how skating can create a non commodified community, right, a community that's because we're not only skaters, right? we're skaters, but we're also we navigate the world in so many ways. We're also consumers, <laughs> massive consumers. <laughs> and, you know, I traffic in 80s brands which yeah. means that it's used, right? So, like, there's... Not me. I just force people to consume. <laughs> yeah, I can't afford the forced anymore, but uh, <laughs> credit does a whole lot for your ability to front, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, so maybe... Okay, maybe then we think about hip-hop. What's the alternate, alternate history of hip-hop that's related to skating, right? Anyway. Yeah. Uh, last thing I would say is the relation to private property is that, um, I mean, keep skating pools hell yeah like not literally pools because they kind of suck to skate but you know what I mean? <laughs> they're too tight <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like skate the pool to flat yeah yeah it's like it's like, a like Jeroboam and naughty um and no not naughty narnar doesn't matter um i know so i i want to touch on a point that you brought up earlier and i don't think that i adequately wrapped my head around it but you were saying uh, something about a protest without politics and that's actually and to touch on uh, to touch on tommy's board this is actually something that um that i as a white guy have been having a hard time with and i think it's time to air that out no um my grievances first um no it's that um much has come out to to you know there's there's a Malcolm X line that I'm like definitely gonna get totally right and nail the cadence on but it's about how a, a protest movement can be co-opted and turn from a from a 
from a demonstration or a protest into a parade and then the clowns come out. And that that is something that comes from a feeling of not just physical but emotional safety and from the authorities to not perceive you as a threat. Mm-hmm. And for sure. And and so, you know, now we're seeing these these like basically we went from seeing Vincent Nava and Sharif Grady like skating in front of burning cop cars to like everybody mobbing down the th- down the street like throwing horns. And it's like one I am heartened to see that people if life were a binary that they are towards the end racism versus continue racism uh side of the spectrum or 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 the binary but um but how do how are skaters supposed to take this position that they have which is fairly quotidian you know end racism you know nobody that I know in polite society says, yeah. make more racism. Including the killer cops. Yes, exactly. But but I think if if the protest movements, one, don't, don't have a certain amount of either A, specific demands with um, immediate targets. Which they do. And sometimes they do. Yeah. Um, but I'm saying if they don't have that... Mm-hmm. And they are a movement of just saying, like, skate down the street to say no more racism. Yeah, there's been, like, that, a movement to pacify the protests, yeah. like, into, like, unity and peace. And yeah, it's so, not to criticize the people doing that, but it's like the... Yeah, they're definitely on the better side, which is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah like, if you had to split it down the middle, like, yeah, thank you for being not into the racism stuff. But how how do you see these these moments of having less edge are they counterproductive are they are they areas in which people need to be educated or pulled harder on or is it just something that is just auxiliary to the more radical aspects of you know to to the to the i guess more politically versed skaters or the more politically radical skaters like what what are we to do about businesses that do, that don't p- pose any sort of threat or have any avenue for change other than saying it should be and would be a better world if it were different. There's a lot there. Part of it is, I think, thinking or remembering when you tried on a new idea for the first time, right? So if we think about kind of this moment of of skaters and the different meanings that people are giving to what they do for some folks it might be the first moment that they're thinking about power violence politics right yeah so maybe for others it's not the first time mm-hmm. um so this is uh, you know this moment and this break whether it's the pandemic or the the kind of threshold that got reached in the United States for accepting black death because that's what has happened historically um, is that there's a threshold that's been met that which means that folks that are listening that are trying to figure out and get involved in what to do is that it's for the rest of your life yeah so so there may be a moment where you're pushing down the street but then that march is over and you go home and it's like well, what's next and that's where organizations collectives, affinity groups, projects are so important so that being public 
and seeing the power of people in public at a march is hell of important, right? Yeah. Even but, if it's apolitical, well, or, the, or or if it's like the most kind of generic branding of the movement. Without a doubt, because there's always the possibility that the meaning of that generic branding can change, right? So, so people that are gathering across the country in different places are not sharing the same political analysis or understanding of what the consequence of that analysis is, but people are talking. Yep. Now, this is key, and I think this is really important. It's one thing to gather and have a march. It's another thing to have a march and a gathering and have an assembly and break up in the moment where we see our power and then to organize ourselves better. What that means, I don't know. It, we know if we get together and have a conversation. Yeah. So there's the march, there's the intervention, and then there's always what comes after it. And I think that that's the infrastructure or the places where already existing organizations or projects can sort of come in and kind of have a place to kind of suggest how do we pay attention to what is emerging? Yeah. And this is uh, Adrian Marie Brown has a really good book called uh, Emergent Strategies mm -hmm. to pay attention to what's emerging. Where are people thinking, what do we do? What do we do? And how do we cultivate that rather than um, the painful conversation that happened yesterday between two hip hop artists where one generation seemed to be at the end of its political imaginary and the other generation was kind of waiting there hoping that they would come up. You're right? talking about no name and boots. Yeah. And boots I say Riley. that. Yeah, I totally know. You know, uh, and now we know, right? And and so I think that's part of it. Who do we dream with? Who do you imagine with, right? And, and, and for skaters, we imagine and dream with folks that push us to reach our potential. So when I said, how do we politicize the refusal is how do we give a different meaning to the refusal? I'm, we're going to go and skate the pool or wherever that is. But how do we give a different meaning to say it's an empty, let's say that, you know. Alan, we're not skating any pools. Yeah, we're not skating any pools. <laughs> we're not going any, into any development areas that are not finished yet to skate pools. But what would it mean to think about that development area in a different way? What would it mean to house folks that don't have homes in those yeah. abandoned mm -hmm. developments that we go skate? Right? Mm -hmm. I, and I don't know how that would be possible, but just as a kind of imaginary that. Um, uh, I've seen some people living in the abandoned developments. It happens and power to them so then how do we negotiate with the state and the city to get permission i mean i don't know if that's up to us but i do know that as you said ryan we're out in the street skaters are out in the streets we should see she said all the time right what does it mean to be a cop watcher as a skater i don't know i haven't thought about this I yeah i i think a, a really important point that you made is the need to like literally be in the streets and create an assembly because i think a thing that uh, a trap that I often fall into um, and I think I see other people other like well-intentioned white people um, political and apolitical fall into is they turn this into like a uh, they use consumption as a way to deal with with the pain and suffering that they're seeing you know it's like I'm gonna I bought the book I'm gonna, I bought the book I'm gonna purge racism from my life I'm gonna watch the documentaries I'm gonna you know, feel the guilt that I need to feel and we're going to handle it all through this like consumption mechanism or also the deference that people have to academics and journalists and nonprofits and, and I'm talking major nonprofits. Um, yeah, not, SAS doesn't count. Not it's grassroots like, yeah. ones. <laughs> uh, all the good skate ones, they're yeah. out of the picture. But <laughs> no, but I mean, nonprofits play a very crucial role in diverting radical energy um, and 
conforming it back into the system and reifying the system, right? And so, and celebrity activists, I think, play another role in this as well. And it's like the the point you made earlier about speaking to young people who don't have this over-determination, they've, they've, they have a different vision of the world that is possible. And a lot of times that can be like a 16 year old skater, right? It's also Ted saying, reminding us that we could be young old people, right? Like the conversation we were having earlier is about, it doesn't matter what age or how do we unlearn the moment that we are telling ourselves we need to unlearn something. And what I'm yeah. saying is like, I, I don't, you can be 70 or 47 or 12 and, and, and still transform. And I think that's, yes. that's the well, hard thing. Yeah. The, the political philosopher, John Darniel of the mountain goats once said, uh, you have no responsibility to who you were as a young man. Um, which I'm sure he's the first person who ever invented that idea. Um, it starts there. It ends there. No. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, it is, it's really hard to be yourself, honestly. And it's really hard to undo the things that you've made kind of load bearing elements of yourself as well, which is like as a, as a passive kid, if you start to get harder edges, as you get up, as you get older, you're like, Oh, cool. This has helped me like navigate some conflict and not get totally depressed after somebody has criticized me i've i've gotten a little stronger and i did it by talking some shit back and then you find out that that's actually like defensiveness or you find out that you lashed out with some unsavory language um or you know or you've coped in in any other ways through humor uh you know the, there's like a lot of business around people not knowing that the things that they did were racist which is like which makes sense. The system is designed that way. It's like you look at who told you what was funny your whole life growing up, and then you find humor as a mechanism, and then you find out that that, that was all based on a lot a lot of corrosion. I don't know. All I can say is that it's, it's really hard to undo a lot of those things in yourself as you get older um, and to unlearn things. I mean, it's like, I don't know about most people. Like, I'm a pretty... Um, not now, but like in that 22 to 26 range, I was like a super learner. It was pretty easy. You just read the thing and then you remembered it. But to unlearn something, it's like, you know, it's such a confusing process, I think, because it's abstract and it's, it's almost as if you're deliberately telling yourself to forget something, which is impossible. Mm -hmm. Like if I told you, hey, forget your mom, you know, you'd be like, all right, like, let me go like, ah, like that well, seems very hard you can adjust, you can take a new habits um but i think that the language around unlearning can be unclear for some people um and especially if it's undoing parts of like i said like load-bearing aspects of your personality which are either defensiveness or aggression or um it doesn't matter you know um humor is definitely part of it like you know i certainly enjoy a certain amount of irony which has like been used destructively um and, um, and, and I, and I think those are, those are hard cells or I don't know about cells, but those are hard adjustments for people to make, especially when they're abstract like that. And maybe we can't unlearn. Actually, maybe that's, maybe this is a moment to edit out that word. Maybe that is actually impossible in the sense of like, 
it's like how do we revisit the process by which we came to be who we are and then make a different decision with our next step as opposed yeah. right and i i really i mean that's i mean we can undo habits and, and yeah i don't i but, don't know but i wonder if i mean i wonder if what you're talking about makes us much more difficult to be present in the moment because we're like okay here's all and it's not to say we don't need to examine our history, whether as non-black people, right, mm-hmm. or as cis men, or however yeah. one may one may define themselves. Yeah. But I I think I'm going to go back to what we said earlier: is that if we're trying to like unlearn all alone, eh, it's like it's yeah. y'all. It's this conversation here. It's the communities that we're part of that hold us to the aspirations that we speak, knowing that we're going to fail. Yeah. Right. Always knowing and that it might risk our material comforts as well. Yeah. Or the I'm credit, not giving up any debt. money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, another word to introduce here to the last is intersectionality. And we've been talking in an intersectional way. We've been talking about race and class and gender and sexuality, naming them sometimes. But what does it mean to kind of have an analysis that's complicated. There's a Patricia Williams, who's one of my favorite people in the world, says that life is complicated is a fact of great analytic importance, right? And it takes time to understand complicatedness. It takes patience. And those are two things that in a moment that goes so fast and the pandemic and we're trying to make decisions are hard to do. So, well, people are dying too, you know, it's, you know, it's hard to be like, Yes, things are complicated, but whether you like it or not, we have to like mobilize and, you know, in a certain moment you need to make a choice to de-arrest somebody or not. I haven't yet, uh, but like I totally would, like I'm totally that guy. Uh, no. Um, we're all, we're that person when the moment comes. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I am. <laughs> Those guys are, <laughs> that seems so gnarly. Um, three people though to spin the cop around. I mean, yeah. there's a whole tactic yeah. to it. Right? Yeah, yeah. So. I, I think a lot of people in this moment are calling for some version of police defunding, shrinking of a budget, um, or like the maximalist demand of abolition. Um, but there's not exactly widespread pairing of those calls with, as you said earlier, the prison industrial complex but also the military industrial complex that reifies the police. And as we've seen, like that shit comes home to roost, right? Like I'm, I'm reminded of our interview with Aram and his interactions with IDF soldiers in <coughs> occupied Palestine and that our police officers in the States and in Phoenix train with the Israeli government. Like they get training on how they basically manage the occupation and they're bringing that home and so that's why i'm scared i guess yeah i'd like to hear a little <laughs> bit more about why why it's important to tie in you know glo- global u.s and nato imperialism uh, into this broader conversation and again we're, we're big ideas that that hopefully folks can take some more time to look into um on the uh uh elbit systems which is an israeli surveillance system has cameras along the border right uh-huh. Um, our border. Our border. Yep. Uh, on the Autumn Reservation. Um, so the, the, the circulation and the shared resources, knowledge, and violences of local police with, in this case, the IDF in Israel, is a really uh, important example of connecting the way in which the United States, and this is one of those myths that we're told that we, 
we're the moral force of democracy, mm -hmm. so we should police the world. Yeah, um, we're spreading democracy, spreading and, hum democracy and human rights through our 700 plus military bases, right? Yeah. So there's a direct connection between. There's a movie about that. <laughs> Driving Miss Daisy. Uh, uh, Team America, but yeah. <laughs> um, so if, if, we, if we just take that example of surveillance on the res, that is surveillance that has been developed to surveil Palestinians, that is a racialized surveillance, um, then we can hook that on to the ongoing settler colonialism in, in, in Arizona, right? And so not just the massive numbers of COVID cases, in in the Diné nation, yes, but the ongoing exploitation of uranium, the ongoing exploitation of the mineral rights that are right. So, settler colonialism is ongoing. So, it's really important to kind of connect these these what appear to be huge ideas, and they are international sort of militarism elsewhere with policing locally, and not only in the training, but in the militarization of the police, in the way in which uh, police entities have uh, equipment that was used for warfare. So then you think, well, why do we have counterinsurgent police in communities? Mm -hmm. um, second is the very fact that, and, and Ryan, you've said this earlier, is that if we think of who, quote unquote, the police protects in Phoenix or Tempe, private properties, what communities they're policing, mm -hmm. what communities they're not policing, then how do we sort of expand that imaginary to think about the globe? And very specifically, how do skaters navigate police elsewhere? I'm not a pro skater, I don't do any filming, none of that stuff, so I don't actually have that dynamic. But what is there in that moment of understanding kind of the fact that U.S. foreign policy isn't far away? U.S. foreign policy is on the reservation. Right, so that we have a place close by to understand the international politics of policing that then are just here right next to us. Um, mm -hmm. Part of what we've been talking about in this whole episode uh, is a narrative of U.S.ian history, and I say U.S.ian rather than American because America is a continent, of U.S.ian history is that if there's an alternate historical narrative that is from the perspective of people whose voices have not been included in the narrative, then the imaginary of what can come next, if we include those voices, will be fundamentally different. Um, other than um, reading books you buy on Amazon about uh, maybe abolition or, or uh, you know, any sort of the prescribed reading list, uh, which I've, I've suggest everybody go to, on Amazon on their phone or use Audible and pay for the membership. It's uh, definitely the best way to consume that stuff. Um, no, use Overdrive, buddy. Yeah, use, um, <laughs> use, I have, I have Jeff Bezos's Venmo, uh, and, and I'll just give that to you. Um, it's in the show notes. Uh, don't go to local bookstores. No, other than um, kind of doing this, this education practice, uh, which sometimes, like you said, with the apolitical marches can be an anything can be an entry point, right? Like anti-flag is to my ears now, maybe the worst band I've ever heard. Um, it's hard. Uh, I've also heard ICP, which is now getting better to me somehow. Um, but they were a big entry point for my seventh grade friends and myself. You know, they said, we're looking to start a new army that's too smart to fight and too smart to die. And that doesn't make any real sense, but it's charismatic and it kind of gets you in the mindset of being like, 
Oh, yeah. What if I was aggressively not into the actual army? That'd be like a fun thing to try on. And it is a fun thing to try on, and it makes a lot of sense, and it ties into a lot of, a lot of I think, the most core philosophies that most of us agree on, which is like, don't do more damage than less. So other than kind of educating yourself or, 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 or from, that, from that first foot in the door, I don't expect, like, I'm not somebody who's very organized so i wouldn't suggest like everybody try to start an organization but one thing that is happening that's happening down the street at sas that's happening with some of the students that you've worked with is something called uh, phoenix mutual aid or mutual aid phoenix and a lot of people aren't familiar with this process or or how it ties into um into a political undoing uh which is if, if um or, or or as some abolition strategy but I think it's really important that people know um, that there are um, some things that are pretty fucking cool they're not nonprofits they're not businesses they're mutual aid organizations um, and and how can people go a step further than doing the right thing by educating themselves to be the least racist person possible in their body um, and, and what does something like this look like? What does it do? And and how does it get started? And how can somebody contribute? What's a mutual aid business? There's a lot of talk about solidarity, right? So we're in solidarity with, and solidarity with, and solidarity is very important. It's a very, it's a much more political kind of idea than allyship and thinking about privilege. So when we think about solidarity, there's like I'm going to stand next to you, right? And we're going to be here next to each mm -hmm. other. What does it mean to go beyond solidarity? Right. What does it mean to sort of say, what is it, what, how do we move together? How do we, as the Zapatistas in Chiapas would say, caminamos preguntando, how do we walk together asking questions? Right? How do we sort of say, what do we do? How do we do it? So mutual aid is a consequence of people asking questions about how to survive. Really quick, of kind of few historical examples. One, W.E.B. Du Bois wrote this book wrote about abolition democracy, which was talking about after the Civil War, the institutions that were created by formerly enslaved people to survive, mm -hmm. right? So the Freedmen's Bureau, which was about land redistribution or the emergence of what becomes public education, there were what W.B. Du Bois called abolition uh, uh, projects that were transition projects towards something else. What the something else was, we don't know yet because we're making it, right? Yeah. Um, uh, another example of mutual aid projects comes from Mexican communities and immigrant communities in the Southwest and in other places that were coming together to provide, uh, whether it was food, whether it was um, support for childcare or for burying someone. So mm -hmm. it's a way that a community comes together to support each other outside of the state and outside of capital, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not about reproducing money or making a profit it's about how we care for each other and yeah, it's a we, mechanism right yeah. and, it, and it's a it's a meaning given to the mechanism right yeah. it's not charity it's like okay we're part of community what do you need what do i have um yep. uh, and so that's another area another place to think about it is from the anarchist tradition about mutual aid and support that is a, is the sort of similar idea what resources do we have and how particularly in a time of covid i think perhaps the mm -hmm. hierarchy of needs has changed. Well, and I, I also think like a lot of the, there was a lot of frustration in the political moment following the Bernie campaign. And then that combined with 
COVID and it's like people are looking for outlets. And, uh, and again, with the, with the protests and the, the police killings, people are looking for an outlet beyond just the glamorous. I'm going to go to a protest and, you know, being involved in a protest is wildly important, but it also ends. And so yeah. it's like, what do you do that's not so glamorous at home afterwards that isn't just. Yeah, and the I'm book gonna, ends. Yeah, yeah exactly. I'm not. And, you know, and, and people rightfully so maybe feel a little disillusioned with electoral politics in this moment and and are looking for concrete ways to help and also they're seeing the way that historically always the marginalized communities are suffering especially in this moment it is not by accident that navajo communities and black communities are suffering uh disproportionately under covid in every city that y'all are listening in, there are organizations that are doing mutual aid work, that are organizing around against police violence, that are organizing to redistribute um, the defunded money from police elsewhere. So part of it is to kind of to look locally where you're at. Yeah. Um, I, I, it is super significant to consider what happens after the march, right? And 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 if there are not infrastructures or places. Think about how to start them and reach out. Mm-hmm. Mutual aid here in Phoenix, there's different drop-off points. It was it comes out of, of a Black Lives Matter trajectory. Um, and so in where you're listening to, I, I'm almost positive there's a mutual aid project in your city. Mm-hmm. And if there's not, hit us up. We'll put you in contact with the folks that are doing it and to get it started. Because yeah. those are the kind of infrastructures that they take work and time, but then all of a sudden it's tomorrow. And we do it again. And then it's yeah. the uh-huh. next day and we do it again. And all of a sudden we're six weeks, six months into a whole new way of imagining how to do tomorrow. Sure. Right. Yep. And, and you're connecting with people in your community. And I, I think that um, you spoke about this on one of the other uh, two times we recorded this. We're doing Groundhog's Day, trying to record the perfect podcast. But uh, you were you were talking a lot about meaning making. And for me, I think the the thing that I latched on there is that the the normal everyday things that you you like doing you know i'm looking i got a garden in the background i've got skateboards in my car it's like how can you implement those things and ascribe a new meaning that affects political change right improve someone's life and again it's not an act of charity because anyone who knows that's ever had like spare parts in their car and you know giving them to a friend it's not there's not it's not charity you're you're stoked that you're getting not transactional yes not transactional but it's also not charity because you're stoked that that person's just getting involved in skateboarding because you know it's going to change their life yeah um and i I think that that is kind of the for me at least that's exactly it like that's the window out it's like you know we do all sorts of stuff like i have this thing and you need this thing so like how can we work it out so that you have it? Um, you know, when you get to the point of, you know, at what point somebody is suffering or whatever from giving, that's a whole nother question in our society. We just have so much stuff. I've got so many skate parts. You've got a lot of skate parts. There are a lot of people who would like to try skating. Um, SAS, although it is a 501 C three company, um, just the, just the process of giving a board out to say like, yeah, have a board like you don't have to be a SAS member you don't have to be um and i'm not saying SAS is a mutual aid project but i'm saying that that escaping that paradigm of i will do something for you if you can do something for me is at the very least uh one of the most humanizing experiences you can have under the current system we have like i 
uh, I don't know, uh, every non-depressing moment of my life comes from experiencing some type of love or shared reality with somebody who does not expect for me to do anything else other than to accept it. Yeah, and to to uh, touch back on emergent strategy we were talking about, the, the fascinating thing, and, and again, getting involved in the Mutual Aid Phoenix Project was not my idea, but you reached out to Justine and, and she reached out to us and we had a space with you know, and downtime right now. So I'm not taking any credit for that. But the the um, the benefit of being involved in that means that people are now coming to our office, dropping off stuff. They're interested in skate after school. They want to get involved. And it's like where that's where the, the magic is. It's not just in like, oh, you know, people dropped off bottles of water. People dropped off hand sanitizer. They're going to take it to these people. It's like you're connecting and building a network and a, and a community and like to tie back to the um, the broader framework of abolition is like how that's the start of building those community yep. networks so that eventually when, you know, a violent thing happens and, and you don't have to call the police. Right. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Sorry. We, we had this uh, project at the Perryville at the women's prison here for about seven years called Humanities Behind the Walls. And one of our primary kind of inspirations was this idea. How do you condition the possibility of something else? Yeah. Now, what that something else is, it's going to be something else. Let's not make it hierarchical and centralized, but whatever that something else, let's condition that possibility. So the police are a transactional relationship. We pay taxes to, quote unquote, be protected. That's a load of shit. Right. That 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 second part never happens. Yeah. Private mm-hmm. property is what's protected. But there's a transactional moment there. Abolition is not about transaction. Right. So how can we think about our social relationships in a non-transactional way as a way to abolishing a transactional relationship? Because at, if, if indeed that's what makes it probably more harder to be friends is we're just always transacting. There's no real mm-hmm. then that's a good place to start in thinking about how all of our relationships may be transactional and the ones that aren't are the ones that we cultivate and the other ones that are transactional let's have a critique and analysis of why they are and then we may get a powerful essay critiquing the way in which folks have to survive as an independent contractor as a skater is also impossible yeah i don't want to get too much into that i i think that that that's inspiring stuff um you know i'm always attracted to non-vertical approaches to resource distribution um, and um, and there's just a lot of business that that has come up. It's you know somebody somebody potentially didn't have fucking twenty bucks, right? Like that's no that under no circumstances in any sane world is that a condition for murder. And so you're like. So, so exactly. Mutual aid in practice would be the guy behind you in line has 20 bucks for you. And, and the same goes for this business in in Atlanta. The guy can't drive home under no circumstances. Shouldn't, should somebody trying to run away from you because you're trying to arrest them be a condition for murder because they couldn't drive home because they were drunk. Mutual aid is, is, is not getting that guy a, a LYFT home, but it's having a network of people that you can call on when you're too drunk to drive home that can give you a ride. Um, and, and to not expect anything other than they have the capacity to give you a ride. You are in need of a ride. 
this is how we build community. Um, and, and, and I see a lot of instances in which the, the, the market or the lack of mutual aid has conditioned more of this state violence. Um, well, and not to mention that <laughs> aside from the violence, the the state is not here to save us. Like, well, yes. that's one thing, especially this state, like yeah. the United States is yeah. one thing that has been perfectly illustrated under COVID is that the state will not save us. And like in George Floyd's case, you know, he lost his job as a bouncer due to COVID-19 closures so, so yeah because yes. exactly and yeah. it's so it's like you have this economic situation in which people again it's like it exacerbates the violence and then yeah. you have the instead of the the cashier saying oh you know that's fine he feels deputized again because we have police is beyond just people who identify as police or have badges you know we we it's internalized yes it's yeah. internalized that we feel deputized to to uh that's the way that we solve these issues you know so it's like, yeah, for me, the the major takeaway is that we we have to save ourselves. Like the state's not going to, you know. Yeah. And then who the us is. And yes. this is why Black Lives Matter are saying Black Lives Matter and are talking about black power as well. But they're saying, look, if if trans women, black trans women are saved, if black women are saved, if their lives matter, then all of our lives matter. Right. And yeah, that, that's right. And that and I think and, and that has to to be front and center, even if not everybody understands quite what it means yet, right? In other words, think in your life, what does that actually mean for you yep. in your world? Uh, that Black Lives Matter, that we are, we are in a moment that is a, in Spanish it's parteaguas, uh, before and after. Mm -hmm. watershed this is a before and after moment how do you want to remember yourself now and how do you want other people to remember who you are now yeah and how do we hold space for folks not unlearning because i don't know if we can i like that but how do we hold space to create something else yeah, yeah. okay that uh that sounds like a, a pretty good place to wrap up uh let's do a crack the door open to consume some shit yeah so let's get a let's get a few book and or documentaries or movies uh that you would suggest for people out there i thought about this for a while now i'm, I'm drawing a blank uh there's uh alondra nelson's book um about the uh medical programs of the black panther party body and soul would be a terrific book to check out because it's a story we don't know about the Black Panther Party's health uh, programs and anti-violence organizing. Um, anything by Dean Spade, uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Angela Davis, Sadia Hartman, Robin Kelly, Kimberly Crenshaw, Natalie Diaz, the poet, I just I can keep listing names <laughs> forever. Yeah. Uh, I there's also um, presently there's a group of podcasts and other sort of videos online that are talking about abolition. Um, oh yeah, you mentioned Ear Hustle. Ear Hustle is a terrific podcast that comes out of San Quentin. Um, 
I would also think about, you know, we were talking about why we fight, right? The documentary yeah. about the history of militarism. Yeah, that, that'll really open, open your brain up to, to the, the military-industrial mm -hmm. complex. Um, There's the documentary about the move bombing in Philadelphia when the police bombed uh, a Philadelphia neighborhood where the move organization was in, in, the, in, the, in the 80s. Um, Prison in Twelve Landscapes by Brett Story is a tremendous documentary about incarceration that never actually looks at prison. It looks at the consequences of it. Uh, Kaba, Maryam Kaba, I mean, she's a primary person. I think I already mentioned Dean Spade. Those are kind of the main folks. And from there, do, send us emails, ask Ryan what to watch as well. Ask Tommy yeah. G what to watch. Yeah, we got Ask the elders what they came up on. Sweet, yeah. And there's like a Mark Ruffalo miniseries now. I don't know if it's about abolition, but it's pretty good. <laughs> um, cool. I think we did it. Um, Thanks for listening, folks. No, um, it's a is an absolute pleasure. Thank yeah, you. I hope that um, we are of some help. And again, like, please feel free to reach out to any of us if you have any questions. Not that we have the answers, but um, this only happens with sharing resources and sharing information. So, Unity Skate Witches, right? We got to. Yeah. Unity actually is, is really cool because for so long people are like, what are you, a brand? And they're like, no. And that was it. It was like, yeah, that's kind of, that's cool um, to, to, to look into projects that are outside of the typical trappings of branding, the market, mm -hmm. capital, the wrong things. Sweet. All right. Take care, folks. Brianna Taylor, you'll be remembered as someone who was truly kind you were a guiding light in your friends and family's life you should be celebrating your birthday tonight 27 years ago you were born in America and then you lived here until you died policemen took your life and how they robbed the world of you One less EMT One less daughter One less black woman One more martyr There are too many martyrs Brianna Taylor You'll be remembered As someone who cared about people's lives as for your murderers no one will remember their names but justice will be served for their crimes intro music by michael krigger you can find more of his stuff at blogafonte on Instagram. That's B-L-O-G-A-F-O-N-T. Outro music by Sean Bonnet of AJJ. Search any music platform or YouTube for AJJ. You'll find it. I suggest starting with No More Tears or People 2 The Reckoning. Logo and graphic design by Michael Warfel. You can find more of his fine work 
at Warful, W-O-R-F-U-L. I'm not going to do a skit or a song really for our overly generous friends over on ProFlow, but again, I just want to say thank you so much for your support. This month, we were able to use the funds from your tier to support organizations fighting for liberation on the ground. Um, for any of the titles that we brought up in the episode, please consider uh, disregarding my uh, poor attempts at a joke. Check out versobooks.com or akpress.org to find uh, radical titles, to find some of those titles. And, and, and once again, I want to say thank you to all our ProFlow people. Let me get my loop pedal. Here we go. Nothing fancy here. Betsy Gordon. Betsy Gordon, thank you. Uh, it really means a lot, and, and your conversations have really helped a lot of us. We love you. Brian Higgins, you've been with us a long time, and that means a lot, and we hope that you are looking for ways to push against all the systems of oppression in your own life. Cameron Jimmo, it means a lot that you're still with us and, and that you support the show and and I hope that you are taking the time to educate and to act High Energy Skate Crew we know you guys are just a group of good people trying to do the right thing and, and we appreciate your support on the show Kristen Lukey you've helped the show a lot and you, you help one of our cast members uh, more than the rest of us so thank you Lars Garvey Link Peterson, I really do just love saying your name. Thank you so much for all your support for the show. Lucy, still no last name, but still nothing but love for you. Luke Whitford, you're a cornerstone of our tier, and we hope that you're out there working, pushing, showing up in whatever way you can. Neil Shoemaker, I don't know how long been but it's been too long since any of us have seen you but we hope that you and your family are all good and it means a lot that you've helped the show so much sean doyle thank you it's again been too long as well but we hope that in new york you're finding ways to push against the police state sean hannafin you and your profession, your school district have been defunded for years. We hope that that changes very soon and that you can finally have the resources that you and your students need to thrive. Stone Friesen, our newest, thank you for listening to the show and thank you for supporting it. It means a lot. I hope that you're out there on the ground. Terrence Dylan Rooney, you didn't know the ICP lyric. I'm Violent J and I'm back like a vertebrae, but that's totally fine. We still love you and we are happy to have you. <laughs>